Several years ago, a woman by the name of Hannah Peterson, not the Hannah Peterson in our own church, but a woman who lived in Ontario, Canada, was in a serious accident. Happened to be in July. She broke her pelvis in three different places, punctured her kidney, broke several ribs, suffered a concussion, and had partial hearing loss from this serious accident. What compounded the situation even more is that she was only a month away from her wedding date. She was determined not to put it off. She was going to get married. And so indeed, when the day came, Hannah was wheeled down the aisle in great pain, halfway down the aisle by her father. And her husband-to-be, Stuart, went halfway down the aisle, picked up his bride-to-be, Hannah, and walked her all the way down to the front. There was a chair there for her to sit on, and he placed Hannah on the chair. They went through the ceremony, but when it came time for the vows, she said, I'm going to stand for my vows. She barely could get up. Stuart helped her, embraced her, and they said their vows together and became husband and wife, and the place cheered. She said, the video doesn't show how much pain I was really in, but I was determined to experience only one emotion that day, joy. And then she said this, Stuart was there all the time. Through all of the difficulties, he stood right beside me, and his actions displayed his love. I knew how blessed I was, and that indeed, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the guy I was marrying loved me. Isn't that a great story? And you and I are touched by stories like that, and well we should be, and maybe tears fill up in our eyes when we see it demonstrated in our own experience, but I simply want to tell you today there's a greater love story than that. Jesus loves you. And it's put in the context of marriage. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. We continue our study in the wonderful book of Ephesians. And actually concluding chapter 5 this morning. When we read the scriptures, we see that the love of God and the love of Christ is dominant for us. That Jesus and the Father, they're standing right beside us through our trials and tragedies. And they're right there to hold us up when we're in pain and to give us joy even in the midst of challenge and difficulty. Look at verse 25. This is Ephesians 5:25. Husbands, love your wives as, what's the rest of it? Christ loved the church. That becomes the example for a proper marriage that is the same love displayed by Christ toward his bride is to be the same love that a human groom will share toward his bride the amazing love of Christ. Now notice, if you jump down to verse 32, this is a profound mystery. What are you talking about? I'm talking about Christ and his love for the church. It is a mystery when 
man and woman come together in love and two selfish people are able to overcome that selfishness and commit themselves to one another and truly love someone more than themselves, that is a great mystery. But an even more profound mystery is that Jesus loves you and me. That truly is complex and weighty and deep. I love the story of the great theologian who was lecturing at the University of Chicago, and after the lecture opened up to the wide audience the opportunity for questions, and many people asked questions from this theologian who was so brilliant. He had written many volumes of theology, half of which most theologians cannot understand. It's so deep. And one student from the University of Chicago stood up and raised his hand and he said, uh, sir, could you summarize all of your theology in one sentence? <laughs> the crowd laughed. How audacious, how stupid and ignorant to ask of this great theologian to summarize everything in one statement and yet without hesitation he did. He said these words, yes, in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, here is my theology in one sentence, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's it. It's one thing to know it. It's one thing, another thing, to be transformed by it. Jesus loves me. This is a profound mystery. This love, by the way, goes back all the way before time. Look at Ephesians chapter one just for a moment, and you'll remember when we started our series back in September, we talked about the fact that the love of God was there before the foundation of the world. Verse four says that we have been chosen before him, before the foundation or creation of the world, to be holy and blameless. He chose us to be holy and blameless. That's his goal, and he did this in love. In fact, it's very difficult to know whether the two words in love should go with verse four or verse five, but I think they go with both. Because his choice is in love, his purpose is love, and then the purpose filled out in verse five is all about love. That's love, by the way, before the foundation of the world. And as we're going to see in a moment, this dominant love of Christ, which is mentioned about 12 times in the book of Ephesians, this wonderful love is going to last all the way to the end of eternity. Because nothing can stop God's love for you. Read about that in Romans chapter eight. Not difficulty, not death, not persecution, not famine. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I say again, it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to be transformed by that truth. Every great Christian has been transformed by some truth. That is, some wonderful biblical truth has gotten into the core of their being and just will not let them go. I pray that today, whatever else may be there in the core of your being, it will be this wonderful truth. Jesus loves you. Like a wonderful groom loves a bride. Well, we come to this portion of scripture and it's been said that this statement, running from verse 25 all the way down to verse 32, is so complete and comprehensive that many scholars believe it was taken from an old hymn 
or maybe a liturgy, liturgy of worship that was commonly used, or perhaps even a creed of the early church as it describes the love of God for us. Christ loved the church, verse 25, and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, or perhaps more literally, having cleansed her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Hey, that sounds familiar. Did we not just read that in chapter one? (laughs) He chose us to be holy and blameless. So that is maybe that creedal statement that the early church would embrace, would repeat, would sing, would quote. And that's what we ought to do in our songs and in our creeds, repeat the things surely believed among us, the core teachings of the gospel, and here it is, Jesus loves me. So having loved the church in eternity past, he demonstrates that love to us, and that's what I want to see today in four expressions that appear to unfold the wonderful love of God for us. Having loved us in eternity past, he displays that love to us, just like a husband ought to display his love to his wife. You've heard the story, haven't you, of the wife who said to her husband, why don't you tell me that you love me? He says, when we got married, I said that I loved you. If I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. (laughs) And so instead of telling her every day, I love you, I love you, it's like, hey, I told you that once, isn't that good enough? You and I need to hear from the lips of Jesus every day, I love you. And that's what the word proclaims. So here are four expressions of the love of Jesus set in eternity past on you and demonstrated in time and it will last for all eternity. Here's the first one. How do I know that Christ loves me? He died for me. Or how do I know that Christ loves the church? He died for her. Verse 25. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the epitome of love, isn't it? To give yourself up for someone else. That's the best definition of love. That's the gold standard of love. Greater love is no one than this, than someone would give up their life for their friends. Jesus loves us so much, he was willing to give up his life for us. I came across something very interesting from the theologian J.I. Packer who said, that there are multiple words in the Greek language for love. Actually, there's about four of them. But until the gospel came, the word agape was not to be found. It's like Jesus invented the word agape. You had friendly love, phileo. You had eros love, sexual love. You had sturgeon love, which was the love between a mother and a child, natural love. But it wasn't until Christ came along that the word agape became giving yourself up for someone else. The gold standard of love, and here it is. Jesus loves the church so much, he gives himself up for her. The Bible talks about the love of God as being the unfailing love of God. Isn't that a great adjective? Unfailing. 
If the love of God for us was powerful and rich and good, but lasted only a short period of time, that would still be rather amazing. But to hear that the love of Christ is unfailing is to me profound. And when I get around profound things, I get silent. Silent because I'm humbled by them. Silent because they are awesome. And I can't get my little mind to quite wrap around the profundity of it all. And that's what happens when I think of the love of God. So we need to sing it. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. Deep, deep is the love of Jesus. Sing about that love until it truly fills your soul every day. That ought to be the goal. Of course, what are we talking here when we talk about the love of God and the fact that Jesus gave up himself for us? What are we talking about? The cross, right? But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were the undesirables, sinners, Jesus gave up himself for us. He died on the cross. There's the love of God, and it is a special love. You are the special object of his love. Just like in a wedding ceremony, there is to be one man and one woman, and that love is to be exclusive. I've never performed a wedding ceremony where the husband said to the bride, I love you, and six others. (laughs) And if this doesn't work out, I've got a few others in mind. I really do love you, but (laughs) just in case. No, it's I love you, exclusively you, and only you. And Jesus gives us that amazing love. Now you say, but wait a minute, there's a lot of us. Well, you have to think of us believers collectively as his bride, right? Even though there are many of us, we come together as one. And what he loves collectively, his bride, he loves individually you and me. The Apostle Paul put it this way, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this flesh, I live by faith. That's my goal. That's my motivation. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And he gave himself for me. I wish I could hear Paul quote that. Do you think he'd say, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me in life, which I now live in the flesh, and he gave himself for me, big deal. I think Paul would fall down on his knees and tears streaming down his face as he would contemplate, Jesus loves me and gave himself for me. He died for you. In theology, there is a debate over who or whom, how do you put it, over the people Christ died for. Uh, Calvinism, in its, farther, in its furthest development, five-point Calvinism, has a point in it called limited atonement. You ever heard of that? And it simply means that Christ died for the elect only. Christ died for believers only. And I have to tell you that is found in the scripture to some degree. And here it is. Who did Jesus give up himself for? For his bride. 
There's another passage of scripture that talks about particularism, which I think is a better term, and it's found in John chapter 10. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives up his life for the sheep. But then Calvinism, in its, I think, excessive mode, stops there and doesn't bring in the other scriptures like 1 Peter, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Jesus is the savior of all men especially of those who believe. Or we read in 1 John chapter 2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now what you have here in Scripture is called an antinomy. An antinomy is a contradiction between two beliefs that by themselves seem very reasonable, but when coming together they seem to conflict and clash. We call that a paradox. Now, I simply want you to know that in every point of theology, there is a paradox. Because God is infinite, we're finite, and you can never pull the two together without some clash. The gap in between is mystery. So you and I believe things that by themselves seem reasonable, but when brought together seem contradictory. Let me give you one example, the Trinity. We believe that God is one, and we believe that God manifests himself in three people. And you try to understand that, and your mind explodes. It's too profound. I stand in awe, silent before the triune holy God. And if you want to see the Trinity, study the book of Ephesians. We've seen it about a dozen times, right? So we believe what appears to be contradictory. So let me suggest something to you, that in the death of Christ, he sheds his blood and dies for the whole world, as it says in 1 John chapter 2. But when he died on the cross, he had you in mind. There's particularism as well as potentiality. I mean, what I want you to know is that he loves you so much and set his love on you before the foundation of the world that when Jesus died at the cross, he had you on his heart. Isn't that moving? Shouldn't that change the way you live? He loves you and he died for you. The title, by the way, that he gets for doing this is Savior, verse 23. He's the Savior of the body. But he doesn't stop there. His love is also expressed in verse 26 where he wants to cleanse his bride to make her holy. That's why he gave himself up to make her holy, to cleanse her with the washing of the water with the word. So he died to sanctify her. It's another way to put it. The cleansing is the sanctifying. It's the washing away of the filth and it's the, uh, the establishment of holiness in the spiritual sense. Now in the physical sense, when a bride would get married in both Greek and Jewish setting, they would go through special purification processes. This is where the mikvah, the Jewish mikvah would come in And just as they, before worship, would go through a ceremonial bath, so the same thing would happen. They had these ceremonial washings before they would get married. Now, we do the same thing, only we call them not mikvahs, but spas. (laughs) A bride spends the day at the spa, or the day before, getting ritually prepared (laughs) for the wedding ceremony. But it's kind of the same concept. This is a big deal, and I'm going to get prepared for it. 
And so it was in the first century. And so that's the picture, the washing, the bridal bath, as it were. If you go back into the Old Testament, you'll read in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, that Jehovah, Yahweh, brought Israel in as his bride. She was defiled and dirty, but he cleaned her up and made the bride his own. Study the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, or Hosea, is a story of God's love for Israel, who had been unfaithful to him, just like the love of of Hosea for his wife, Gomer, and God's persistence to pursue and to cleanse. That's the old covenant. In the new covenant, you have the bride of Christ, which is made up of Jew and Gentile. That's what we've been studying in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. The two have become one. And now Jew and Gentile, as one new person, are the bride of Christ. And it's his desire, just as we read in chapter 1, to make you holy. His greatest desire for you is not to make you happy, but to make you holy. But he knows that in making you holy, you will be truly happy. And so that's the goal of God. God is intent on making you Christ-like. That's what we read in Ephesians chapter 1. He has predestined you to be adopted children. In Romans chapter 8, he has predestined you to be just like Jesus. That means once you are saved, God is on a course, a course that he will not uh, deter from, and that is to make you like Jesus. How's it going so far? Are you enjoying the program? Some days yes, some days no. Some days the lessons are hard. They're called trials. But all of that is designed to make you like Jesus. Because God is intent on cleansing his bride. Why is that? Verse 27, because he wants to present you to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish. And here's the third expression of his love. His goal is to present you to himself as perfect in heaven. This is glorification. This is the eschatological future. That means the last times and beyond. This is the end of the world and the beginning of the final age. The stage of eternity, you will be presented before the Father, perfect, dressed in the gown of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I have to confess to you, I can't get into wedding dresses like brides can. I think using an old one is fine. I think adjusting it a little bit is great. I think getting one on sale, I think they all look alike, they're white. (laughs) But you talk to a bride and they've got some strong views. Oh, I can't get married in that thing. That's off-white. I need a perfect white. And I want this and I want that. And that's okay. Uh, Men can't, very few men can get into that kind of thing. But they like what happens after the wedding, so they're willing to go through it all. 
pick the dress you want. But isn't it a gorgeous thing during a wedding ceremony to see a bride who has been through the ritual spa to come down in an amazing dress? Isn't it fantastic? What will it be like when Jesus says to the Father, here is my bride, radiant. By the way, that Greek word means in glory. Glorified. What is glory? Glory is when we are covered with the righteousness of God that actually glows and shines. Glory is the radiance of God, the shining forth and manifestation of the otherwise hidden being of God. And so at that day when we are presented, our true nature will be seen. Perfect, without spot or wrinkle or any kind of blemish. Perfect. You say, man, I'll never achieve perfection. Indeed, you won't on your own, but in Christ you already are. And one day you will perfectly be presented before the Father in glory. I can't, I can't get my mind around that. This is profound. I'm dumbfounded. By the way, the washing of the water probably refers to baptism. Not that baptism cleanses us, but it is the symbol of our cleansing. By the washing of the water of the word, the word is probably the gospel that is preached, which when believed brings cleansing to us. And then we are presented perfect. So Jesus is the Savior when he dies for us. He is the sanctifier when he cleanses us. And he is the bridegroom when he presents us perfect before the Father who demands perfection and holiness. And the only way we can get it is for someone to die for us who's perfect. That's the gospel. And to flip it over, your marriage is to display this type of love and this type of wonderful forgiveness. Isaiah 62, verse 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so God will rejoice over you. He'll rejoice over you. He loves you so much. He's done all of this to redeem you and to cleanse you. And when he presents you, he'll rejoice over you because you are his. That's astounding. How come this doesn't thrill my soul every day of my life? Well, it should. But there's one other thing, and this doesn't quite go chronologically, but this is the way it's presented in the scripture, so let me mention it. It's in verse 28. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, we mentioned last week in talking about the relationship between husbands and wives that this seems a little mundane. Uh, this seems like we're stepping down a lower level. Um, two explanations for a husband's love for his wife. Love like Christ loved, and then the second one is love like you love yourself, which seems a little more earthy, right? Not quite as exalted and divine, but nonetheless real. And we mentioned that we love ourselves, we take care of ourselves. That's what the scripture says, right? Verse 29, no one ever hated his body unless they're psychotic. But they feed it and care for it. They nourish it. And 
take care of it to some degree because they love it. You're to love your neighbor as you love your, yeah, yourself. We don't need those seminars, as I mentioned last week, on how to love yourself. We do that quite well. But this is the motivation for loving your wife. Now get this, get this. Jesus cares for us because we're his body. It's his self-love that causes him to love us. You say, where do you get that? Well, look at the scriptures. Verse 30, for we are members of his body. That comes right after verse 29. No one ever hated his body but feeds it and cares for it. So what does Jesus do for the church? He cares for her. He feeds her, protects her, because it's his body. We are so indissolubly united with Jesus that we are one with him. Just like when a husband and wife get married, they become one flesh. But now, when Jesus becomes our savior, we become in Christ his body. The discussion of Jew and Gentile becoming one new man is the comparison between husband and wife becoming one new flesh. And there's this union now of Jew and Gentile in Christ, so he is in us, and we are in him, and we are members of his body, and he is going to care for himself because he's God. Isn't that amazing? You say, wow, I wish I could have that kind of love and care from Jesus. You can. But how do you get connected with Christ? That's the question. Well, the answer happens to be here in verse 31. How do you get connected to Christ? And here's a quotation from Genesis chapter 2. And you and I have always read this about husband and wife, right? Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, right? Remember that from Genesis 24. Now look at it from the spiritual standpoint of your marriage to Jesus. How do you get connected to Christ? First of all, there is the leaving of your old home, your former life, for him. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Marriage begins in the human realm when you leave your former life for your mate. What is it in the spiritual realm to leave your former life? What do we call that theologically? Repentance. You turn from your sin and you turn to Christ. You turn from loving yourself and you turn to loving Jesus. But there's a second corollary, and I like the word cleaving, which is the word that's used in the old King James in Genesis chapter 2. Here, the word in the NIV is united, but a man will leave his father and mother and cleave or be united to his wife. So cleaving by faith to Christ is that second response. So I leave my former, former life for Jesus and I cleave by faith to Jesus. And we read about that in Ephesians chapter two, right? The only way that you can be saved, you're dead in your trespasses and in your sins, the only way you can be saved is by faith. It's not by works. If it were, you'd be boasting all the time. All of us would be. Hey, I'm saved, you're not. 
I'm better than you. But we're all sinners, and we're only saved by grace through faith. So cleaving to Christ means that by faith, you cast yourself upon the work of Christ. This is what it is to be saved. Leave your sin. Trust the Savior. And what is the result? The end of verse 31, you become one with Jesus. That is the gospel. I'm one with Christ, not because of who I am, but because of who he is, because of his amazing love for me. Started in eternity past, demonstrated by his death, by his cleansing me, by his one day presenting me before the Father, and even before that by caring for me and all of my needs. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Isn't that an amazing story? And your life will be literally transformed if every day you can say with the Apostle Paul, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, loves me, present tense, and gave himself up for me to prove it. I hope I never get over that. Henry Ford and his wife were celebrating their golden anniversary many years ago, and a reporter asked them, Henry, what do you attribute your 50 years of successful marriage to your wife to? What's the secret of your long marriage? And Henry Ford said this, the formula is the same formula I always use in making cars, just stick to one model. (laughs) Now, of course, Ford and every other car company doesn't stick to one model anymore. But he did back then. You can have any color you want as long as it's black. You can have any model you want as long as it's this one. The secret is to stick to one model. And the secret to your success in your spiritual marriage and spiritual life is to never leave your first love. Stick to one person, the one who loves you so much. He's done all this for you. And his name is Jesus. Heavenly Father, reorient our lives, refocus our eyes, resettle our heart this morning on the one who loves us so much that he gave himself up for us. And somehow work that truth deep into our being so that it brings emotion, so that it changes the way we think and the decisions we make and the plans we have. so that it changes the way we do marriage in this world. Because Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amen. Would you stand with me? Sing with me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more can he give? Oh, how
how he loves you oh how he loves me oh how he loves you and me let's pray father we thank you for this day lord help us to remember that simple truth that you do love us we go here from here remembering that fact it's in jesus name we pray Amen.